book of James this morning as we continue along. Serious question to start with. Is there anything wrong with planning or saving? Anything wrong with planning or saving? And I know generally we answer that fairly easily and say, of course not. If, if anything, it's the person who doesn't plan, who has the capacity to plan ahead or to um, put money away and to save for the future, and who doesn't do that, who tends to invite chaos in some way. And that lack of planning can seem kind of foolish, especially today. Uh, I'm not sure that previous generations um, had the wealth of tools and apps and planners and calendars and things that we do in order to make sure that we are on time for where we need to be, that we've got all of our kids' activity schedules loaded in, that we are saving on time for retirement, all of the different tools that are there to help us in planning and saving. But then you come to the end of James chapter 4, where we are this morning, in the beginning of James chapter 5, and there are some warnings that almost seem to challenge our planning, and our earning, and our saving. Come now, you who say that you will do this tomorrow or next year. James is, is rebuking those who are, are planning in some way. Come now, you who are laying up treasures for yourselves. And again, he's speaking to those who are sort of storing up treasure. So is it possible that we're sinning in our planning and our saving? From God's perspective, the issue here is always more than just our actions, our deeds, what we're doing, but it is our hearts. It is the question of why we do the things we do. Why do I plan and earn and save? What are, what are my goals in these things? Is, is Christ's lordship still seen in my planning and my saving? Am I still in submission to him as I do these things? And those are questions that I hope as we go through this passage, James 4, 13 through James 5, 6, I hope those are questions that you will consider because I think that's what confronts us here is why we do the things we do. Uh, because the nature of, of, of Scripture's warnings here in the book of James is that while these are normal practices, this is something we do, the world does, you, you plan, you earn, you save. We all do this, we do this regularly. While these are normal practices, there's still the potential for sort of worldly wisdom to creep into why we do these things and to, to drive us in wrong directions. It's still possible to do these things in a sinfully arrogant way. So let me start. I want to read James 4, 13 through 17, just to get us started on this. James 4, 13, Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." thinking about this passage just last week, and Pastor Stewart and I were just joking during the break that he had preached this passage um, about two and a half years ago. You, you may remember the timing on this. We, were, we tend to do some topical messages at the beginning of the year, and so he preached James 4, 13 through 17 on March 1st, 2020, talking about making plans and the Lord's will and changing those plans. Anybody see anything interesting about that timing? <laughs> I don't know what that means for the weeks ahead, now that we're back here again in the book of James, but think about it. 
This passage, James 4, the last part of 4 and the beginning of 5, I said to you before, this, this is all flowing out of um, a, a point that James made near the end of chapter 3. That is, there are two kinds of wisdom in the world. There are two ways of interpreting life, of, of, of dealing with questions about life and right and wrong. There is God's wisdom that is from above. There is God's interpretation of who we are, his statement of who we are, and, and our understanding life through his perspective, through scripture. And there is man's, there is earthly wisdom. And the Bible is very black and white, that there are these two kinds of wisdom, and you are either obeying the wisdom of God or you are following the wisdom of man. And so how we interpret the world around us, how we make decisions about life, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, all of that runs through this grid of where we are deriving wisdom. Is it God's wisdom from above or is it man's wisdom that is from below? And your wisdom is either pure, this is all in James chapter 3, it's either pure, peaceable, it loves God and loves neighbor above all, or it is preoccupied with self. It is wanting to do what I want to do and it is primarily focused on me and that leads to strife and sin and selfish ambition and envy. The reason James is so black and white about these things is because of something he's been saying again and again, and that is as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot be double-minded. We cannot be a people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and yet who live very much like the world, sort of one foot in, one foot out. I love Jesus, I love the gospel, and yet living for affections of the world, living to, to pursue desires of the flesh. If your happiness, if your self-fulfillment, if your self-indulgence, if that is your guide, then that is worldly wisdom. That's what he's talking about in, in chapter 3. And that's what's feeding the rest of these discussions is here's, here's the fruit. Here's the outcome of God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom is rooted in the humble acknowledgement that Everything that I have that is good is from God. He is the giver of everything that is good and perfect, and I am to be grateful to him, humble before him, thankful for his blessings, and, and I, I realize that I am a humble recipient of his grace, and so therefore, the fruit of that then is unity and peace and humility, because I, I understand that I don't deserve this, and therefore I, I need to be gracious towards you and love you and serve you. Wisdom from above directs my earthly relationships. Demonic wisdom says my desires are most important. In fact, they are worth fighting for. I want what I want, and I'm willing to, to wage war in order to get it, to fight against you if you're stopping me in some way. As Pastor Stewart showed us last week when he was talking about verses 11 and 12, and the, the, the mockery or the insult of others, it is, it is a demonstration not just of a, a bad tongue, wrong thoughts about another person, but it really is a demonstration that I am my own lawgiver. I am above God. I decide that I can say this and I can do what I want. And, and instead of submitting to the one true lawgiver, I am essentially a law unto myself. This morning then in the last paragraph of James 4, first paragraph of James 5, we're going to see some strong warnings that essentially urge us to guard against allowing earthly wisdom from creeping into some of the ordinary things we do on a daily basis, allowing earthly wisdom to get in and influence and direct our planning for the future, our earning of money, our spending of money, our saving of money, things we do all the time, guarding against allowing earthly wisdom from infiltrating those practices. Again, 
as with all of James' warnings, this is going to keep coming back to, am I taking stock of my heart? Am I asking why I'm doing this? Am I seeking to set goals that, that please him? Is Jesus Christ Lord of my life, or is this selfish ambition? We read the planning part already in, in verses 13 through 16 in particular. And James is calling these people out for their planning, but we need to pause here and, and, and understand it's not sinful to plan because Scripture speaks about wisdom in planning. Proverbs speaks to that. Proverbs 24, verse 3, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. These are all illustrations that he's using here of, of wise planning, of the importance of planning. I, I don't build a house without plans. I don't say, this is my plot of land. I've got some lumber and some concrete and some wire, and I'm going to begin digging right here. And, and when I'm done, I'm hoping that it'll be safe and sturdy and wonderful and everything that I, I imagined in my mind for it to be. I have to have plans in order to do so. I don't decorate the home. It talks about the rooms filled with precious and pleasant riches. There's, there's, there's organization even to, to how we furnish our homes. We don't put the couch in the middle of the kitchen. We think about those things and we place them where, where they're appropriate. And then the last illustration he uses, for all of those of you who've served in the military, you clearly understand when he's talking there. We don't, we don't intentionally walk toward conflict without thinking about what is our purpose What's our strategy in doing this? What are we trying to accomplish? We try to plan. All of these things commend planning in different situations. And so what is it that James is condemning when he calls out the person who says, I'm, I'm planning for tomorrow? The answer is verse 16, when it says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. God is rebuking arrogant planning. One commentator put it this way concerning verse 16, to brag here means to manifest the pretense of the self-creation and soul causation of one's own well-being. In other words, it, it's arrogant planning that says, I will do this. This is my plan. I, I will accomplish this. I will transact this business. I will earn so much this year. I am doing these things. And the outcome of such thinking then is either it doesn't happen and I'm frustrated or it does happen and then I'm all the more saying, I did this. I accomplished this. This worked according to my plan. And yes, there were obstacles, but I overcame them. He's not saying it's arrogant only if we're boasting about it in the end. The arrogance is coming all through this. The attitude that says, I will do this and this is my plan is, is what he's condemning here. But the warning is, is against that kind of self-centered, this is all about me, verses 14 and 15. He, he's really taking this kind of worldly arrogance and holding it up to the light of truth that the question, what do you really know about tomorrow? You who say, I will do this with certainty tomorrow because it is on the calendar, on my phone, it is an event that I put there three weeks ago, and I'm going to do it. What do you really know about Monday and what Monday's going to bring? What do you know about the circumstances that day? What, what do you know about your life, for that matter? How well do you know 
what your existence will be like. How many more days do you have left of relatively good health? What day will you die? Can you answer any of those questions? It's much like God speaking to Job at the end of Job, and, and, and to which we all have to go, no, no, and no. I, I, I don't know. God is sovereign. The Lord does. The Lord is the sovereign ruler of my life. He is the one who gives breath. Isaiah 42, 5 says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. We are breathing in this moment because God has given us breath, because the sovereign Lord is continuing to sustain our heartbeat and to give us life, the one who has spread out the earth. David's prayer in Psalm 39 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. That, that, that know there is an imperative verb. God, please help me to understand what he says next, how fleeting I am. Give me this knowledge of, of my mortality. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Scripture frequently reminds us of our own mortality, continues to remind us that we are here but for a fleeting time. Your soul, as it has been created by God, will live on after you die. But our lives here on earth are brief, and they are passing by. And that should humble us in the presence of the Eternal One, who is from everlasting to everlasting, Moses said in Psalm 90. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is no beginning, there is no end. It's just from eternity to eternity. You are the one true God. James' other thought that's really implied here is not, not just an awareness of my own frailty. When I approach planning, scheduling, thinking about next week, next month, goals for, for five years from now, it's not just my own frailty I need to keep in mind, but it's also the reality that the whole world around us is vanishing. All of it is, is corrupting and fading. And so the, the people and the circumstances and the things that swirl around all of my future plans, I don't control those either. I, I, I don't move those things. God is in control. Those of you who serve in the military, you and your families, when, when you get orders that you are PCSing to another state or another country, there's nothing, no more vivid reminder of, of this sense of, I don't actually have control. I've, I'm being ordered that this is where I need to go next. And, and, and you face this reality. But, but here's what I want to say to you is that as Christians, we need to live in that state of being. We need to be convinced that, that the answer to that is not then retiring from the military, and now I can control my destiny. The, the reality is we are all subject to the leading of the eternal God, and he is sovereign. He rules. Proverbs 16, 9, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. We all need to continue to learn to humbly submit our lives and our planning gladly to the Lord. Be wise. Plan well. There's nothing wrong with that. But do so open-handedly. Do so so that your plans and your goals and your ambitions are set out before the Lord with, with, with the commitment to saying, Lord, this is, what, this is what I hope to do. These are my, my goals. I'd love to be able to accomplish this, but I trust you. I believe you're sovereign. And so that even if these completely change, Lord, change my heart then. Make me happy. 
Help me to be glad in that and to be content and to still thank you and know that you love me and you are good. So that even when everything is upended, this is, this is about heart attitude. Because this is, the opposite of this is what we've been reading over the last couple of weeks in the early part of James 4 when it says, what causes quarrels and fights? What's, what's causing the warring and fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are waging war within you? There's, the opposite of this is that arrogance that says this is mine and therefore becomes annoyed if not angry when plans are changed, when they don't go the way that I wanted them to go. And the answer James gives in verse 15 is that we are to respond if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. That it, that's not a magical phrase. That's not a tack-on phrase that we, we, we sometimes make it. This is what I'm going to do. Lord willing. So say that because I'm a Christian. So let's add Lord willing. And yet then it doesn't go the way we planned and it's like, where was the, where was the Lord willing in all of this? He's, he's speaking to heart attitude. A heart attitude that says, I am finite, but God is eternal. My power, my vision down the road, my ability to know what, what is right and, and the direction is all limited. It's all marked by frailty. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He knows what's best. And so he knows what he is accomplishing in my life, even when the circumstances are not going according to my calendar, the way that I plan these things to be. God not only is aware of what awaits me on Monday, God controls Monday. He is Lord over Monday. God causes the sun to rise on Monday. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, all things were created for Christ, through Christ, and in him all things hold together. He is the Lord of creation. And so our, our approach to planning must be one of if this is what the Lord desires, if this is what the Lord wills as best for me. And, 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 and again, brothers and sisters, the, the test of this when you're seeking to apply this is just think back to the most recent time when your plans were suddenly changed by someone or something other than yourself. You had it. It was on the calendar. It was organized. You had planned for it weeks, if not months ahead. And that kid or that sibling or that boss or that terrible person messed up your plans. And how do you respond in those moments when those plans are changed and your well-organized schedule is thrown off? Do you view it as God graciously giving you an opportunity to say, well, thank you, Lord. I, I held this open-handed, and so I need your wisdom now and your grace so that I can, I can adapt to this turn of events and glorify you in it. Or does it become the James 4.1, and in your heart you are angry? And, and even, if, even if you're not ready to fight, Whoever changed your plans is probably going to hear about it, and probably loudly they're going to hear about it in some way because they messed up your schedule. How's your response in that moment? That's the attitude he's confronting here in James 4, this sort of arrogance that says, this is what I want to do, and when I do it, I did it. Doug Strong, right? Verse 17, though, is, is really key, and I just want to hit that again before we pivot into to chapter 5. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
That's a, a verse, I've often quoted that verse sort of out of context because it, it does speak to what we might call as believers what the Bible would treat as sins of omission. I, I, I didn't do something that I could have done, something that was good, and, and, and therefore it is sin. And, and so it's a sort of proverbial phrase in that sense. But yet this is key to this passage. It's not a standalone because it starts with so or therefore. What he's saying is, so now that you've been reminded that your life is but a mist, and God is sovereign over it. Therefore, do the thing that you know is right, which is to humbly submit to him. Do the good that you know to do, which is to plan open-handed and to trust him and to willingly rest in him. The good that you know to do, don't be arrogant. Give glory back to your maker or sustainer. This verse, and again, chapter verses, chapter breaks and verse breaks were not in what James originally wrote. This verse is gonna, as we pivot over to chapter five, is gonna carry through again. Let me just read the first six verses, and that's what we'll finish with this morning, James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, look, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters are, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, we've talked about how worldly arrogance can infiltrate our planning. I will do this. This is, this is my schedule. I, I want things to run this way. It can also creep into how we think about earning money and saving money, what, what we do as stewards of what God has given. Because in the same way that I can arrogantly plan the future around my passions, I can also sinfully cherish money because it, it helps me indulge myself. It helps me to, to purchase the things that, that I want for my pleasure. Now, let's just... Clarify again, just as James 4 is not a blanket condemnation against planning, there's nothing wrong with being wise in terms of planning, James 5 is not condemning everyone who possesses wealth. Once again, it's the questions, why do I want to earn this? What do I want to do with this money? What are my goals with this income? If I'm, if I'm pursuing greater income, why? What does it allow me to do, and how is the lordship of Christ evident in my earning and my spending and my saving. And so what James does here is he helps us with three kind of markers, if you will, of sinful behavior when it comes to our earning and spending and savings. Three sort of visible ways to see if we're struggling in this area, and they are hoarding, cheating, and indulging. First one is hoarding, where he talks about laying up treasures. Our, our possessions are going to waste they are rotting away while we are continuing to accumulate, even though stuff is, is already going bad. One of the things that I love about summer is cherries. I love cherries. And so early June, when they are on sale in the produce section, my wife knows I come home with my two glorious bags of cherries, and, and I go to town on those. And the family helps a little bit, but I'm the, I'm the one who just devours cherries. And so by late June, early July, I'm still, still buying up the cherries and still eating the cherries and still loving them. And then this past week, you get to late July, early August, 
I found myself as we were walking through this passage, and I'm thinking about this passage, dumping in the trash a whole bag of rotten cherries at that point, because when I was in Giant a week ago, I was sure that I wanted more cherries, two bags, again, of cherries, because, yeah, I'm going to eat them. And they sat, and they rotted. And I said, I've really eaten enough cherries to last me for a while. That's a, a small example, but it, it is... It is what God is condemning here when the attitude is we continued to buy and to store up and to accumulate. And we've got stuff that we don't even know we've got. And it's, it's lost or it's rotting or it's corroding. And yet we continue to store up. Verse 3, when it talks about laying up treasures, it's talking about hoarding. James no doubt, is, is calling back to the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus because he uses the same Greek word there when it speaks of laying up that J Jesus used when he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. James is using the, the same kind of instruction here. And once again, he is condemning double-minded, professing believers who are saying, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus for my provisions, but I really want more stuff. I really want to continue to accumulate even though stuff is rotting and wasting away. I may already have some, but why not get more? My, my, my wife will tell you that one of my favorite lines is, but it was an Amazon special. <laughs> I got it on sale, but do we need it? Maybe not, but it was on sale. It was a deal of the day. He's challenging us here with our laying up of treasures, our storing up, our, our, our realization that I don't need this, but I've got the money, I'm going to buy it. Verse 3 even takes the level of seriousness of this up a notch when it says, the rotting away of things hoarded, it says, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. One commentator describes this, I, I think, very, very adequately when he writes, since the rich have placed their trust and their very sense of worth in their gold and silver, the same poison slash rust that destroys the metal destroys them as well. Neither they nor their metals are refined, only destroyed. That's the nature and judgment of hoarding. It becomes something that I am, I am identifying with my wealth and my possessions. And so when it rusts and corrodes, it's a, it's a judgment against me. It's God's judgment. Our earnings and possessions are good gifts of God's grace to be received humbly with gratitude and used for his glory and kingdom. And instead, we are acquiring and acquiring for our own purposes to spend on ourselves. That's hoarding. Verse 4, he shifts now to cheating. He starts verse 4 by saying, look. Behold, see, see this evil, see this injustice, and in this case, the contrast between the rich and the poor is seen, the landowner and the, the servant who is working for the landowner. Now, James has been going back and forth on this contrast throughout the book. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of James in chapter 1 when he speaks about the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation and how the rich man will fade away like a flower and just perish. And so he's been reminding us of this contrast between the rich and the poor, and he's using it again here to say there is nothing Christ-like about using authority that you have to take advantage of someone else. That if you... You are using a position that you have been given to, to cheat someone else, to harm someone else, to take advantage of someone else. That is not like Jesus. And, and these and their arrogant quest for more are destroying in the process. They are cheating others. 
God's law demands fair payment of wages. Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Pay what you owe. If you hoe the worker and the worker has completed the job, pay the worker for that is, is essentially what he's saying. Don't hold on to it a little longer so that you can accrue some more interest from it. Pay what you owe. These are workers whose very survival depends on these wages. And this kind of economy in the first century, there are those who have and those who don't, and the gap is enormous. And so they, the workers are already battling poverty, and now they're being treated even more brutally by the ones who owe them, for whom they've worked and, and who are gripped by this worldly sort of arrogance that says, my stuff is really most important, and I'll get around to you when I get around to you, but I'm, I'm going to accomplish my own purposes first. We live in a society where much of employer-employee relationships is already governed by law. They're, they're, it's already established, and, and this may not seem as relevant to you and I, which is why I would hearken you back again to James 4.17. He who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Our, our standard is not the bottom line of federal and state law. We, we should obey the law unless it's asking us to sin. We should obey what the law sets out for us. But we should live by a higher standard, which says that I love my neighbor as myself. I desire to serve my neighbor. I desire to bless my employee. I, I, I want to be Christ-like in how I use my money. And so the biblical ethic then is to treat employees in a way that is different from the way the world treats them. There are times the world, even in some of its approach, puts Christians to shame. We should be the most generous and the most gracious because we've been called to be like Christ and be different. I, I, I would take this even a, a step further to say our, our very view of economics is not neutral. How we view economics, the principles that we think about, should still be run through the grid of the wisdom of God. So how we treat and pay employees, what we do with earnings, how, how we respond, bottom lines, wise investments, all important things. But are we thinking about this in a Christ-like way? Is this how God wants us to manage our earning and our spending and our saving? I'll add this, and I think in addition, we need to reject the arrogant, worldly wisdom that treats the hourly fast food worker with contempt. As somebody that can be mocked or ordered around in some way or speaks angrily at the wage earner who messes up and doesn't do the job exactly as required. Our model is Christ. And we are called in all settings to speak with humility and gentleness and tenderness. Speak truth but do so in a loving manner, and God forbid that we should ever take advantage of that person. So hoarding, cheating, and the last one then in verse 5 is indulging. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. God is condemning those who live for comfort, for pleasure, for self. Now, let's strike the balance here again. And take you back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, where I'm reminded, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved what you do. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. So there's, there's clear instruction in Scripture that says, if you've been blessed with these things, give thanks for them and enjoy them. The warning, though, in James when he speaks of this indulgence is don't allow those things to capture your heart. Don't allow the possessing of those things, the desire for pleasure, the, 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 the accumulation of stuff. Don't allow those things to become idols. 
that say, I have to have them. I want them so badly that I'll fight for them. Don't indulge even to the the point as he's describing this self-indulgence of you lack concern for those around you. You're not even aware of people who are in need. You're, You're concerned about your own stuff. You're not even looking at the needs of those around you. That's the key here. It's not just self-indulgence, but it's doing so in the face of the needs of others. Selfishness effectively says that what I earn, what I save, is for me and my people, the people that I love, and that's, that's the priority. It all serves my ends. And God's warning to that kind of materialistic, self-indulgent thinking is, is strong here. It's shocking. He says, you are fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. He's saying, you are... You are like an animal that is being prepared to be butchered. And you're, you're beefing yourself up so that you will make a delicious meal for someone else at some day. That's the, the nature of the warning of God's judgment. It is a damning picture of a culture that is teeming with wealth while others barely survive. And, and the warning to followers of Jesus Christ is don't be drawn into this kind of wisdom. Don't be drawn into the kind of thinking that says, I deserve this. That's how the world operates. We don't live for the benefit of of just providing for our own comfort when others are in genuine need. We're called to be different. Again, it's it's not a condemnation of wealth, but it is an application of James 4.17. If you know that that God has blessed you with these resources and you know that there is something else you can do to bless others with them, then do so. Don't don't act like this is all selfishly for you to hoard up, but be generous in your care for others. If God has blessed you with wealth, how are you being a good steward of it? The starting point there is acknowledging that what I have, the comforts that we have, the meals that we eat, the good pleasures that we enjoy only come by the grace of God. even, Even when we work hard, it is still God who is the provider. Because there's way too many scenarios that that we can see of people who also work hard for long days and who barely get by. People in other parts of the world who work hard for long days and barely have food to eat. What's the difference? What's going on here? At some point, I need to pause and go, God, thank you. I, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what I have, this house, these meals, these comforts. That is your grace, and, and by your grace, you could also choose to remove it from me. And I pray that you would help me to remain content in you, to trust you as still being sovereign. The fact that we seem to thrive as the fruit of our labor is the grace of our King. And so our response should be humble gratitude and good stewardship. That People should see Christ in how we earn, how we spend, how we save, because they're seeing a generosity that demonstrates something about our Savior. It is a wisdom that if you go back to James 3.17, is pure and, and undefiled, that it is full of mercy, impartial and sincere. It's a wisdom that says, if there is good that can be done with what God has given me, let me, let me do it. Let me please serve in that way. Before we just close on this section, just, just one thing worth pointing out. I, I want to be very fair and true to the text. The recipients of, of, of James's letter, for the most part, were not wealthy people. We, we've said this before. He's writing to people who have been scattered by persecution. 
And so many of the people who are receiving James's letter, who are the initial recipients, were not guilty of hoarding or cheating or indulging. They were actually on the other side of things. They were the ones who were being taken advantage of. And so this passage, in some sense, is meant to help those who are suffering to say, God knows. You are not alone in this. The, the, the sovereign Lord still rules here, and God's justice will prevail. The evil that is promoted by this kind of demonic wisdom will not go unpunished. The brutality of those who take advantage of the weak will not be unnoticed, but there will be judgment returned on them. In fact, to the, to the suffering believer, he even points out there at the end of verse 6 that, that those who are suffering do not resist. They, th- these are the righteous ones. He does not resist you, and that will transition next week when we move into verse 7. And, and the one who is called to suffer and to experience suffering and to still glorify God in that. And so the, the lesson there to believers that he's writing to in that period of time is God is, is just and there is a way to still suffer righteously. But brothers and sisters, for, for you and I, I think this comes back to street level faith. How we do the ordinary things, how we plan for tomorrow, how we think about next year, how we think about our long-term goals, how we think about our family income, our salary at work, how we, how we consider our spending, how we do our shopping on Amazon, how we, how we are saving for retirement. There are, there's a wealth of resources and tools on all of these things, full of all kinds of practical wisdom and insights, and Scripture's not forbidding us from, from looking at all of these wise things on investing and, and, and what to do with our money. But the Bible is saying, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ... That faith should shape how you plan, how you earn, how you save, how you spend. You should be different. And and your faith in Jesus Christ, this goes back to the, the, the basic lesson, faith without works is dead. Your faith in Christ should rule over all of these practical day to day areas to think about how trusting in Christ shapes how I respond planning for tomorrow, to spending money, to saving. Is Jesus Christ Lord over your time and over your wealth? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as people who trust in you and yet often struggle with dependence. Too often we, we are comfortable We are satisfied that we have what we need and we're not necessarily like those who cry out for your provision. And so that just just tempts us to fall into this arrogance that says, I can do this, I got this covered, I can provide. Lord, thank you for the reminder from Scripture that our time and the wealth and possessions that we have are all gifts from you. That you rule over these things and that we are called to stewardship, to be faithful with them. And so we plead with you this morning to help us in those areas where we need to repent, where we have, where we have made plans and become angry because they were changed, upset at someone who, who upended our day, And at no point in that pause to 
to recognize your good hand at work. So this morning, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be a people who would plan, earn, spend, save as followers of Jesus Christ, committed to loving neighbor, loving and worshiping you, being full of gratitude and good stewardship in what we do with the resources you give us. Lord, it is clear that since we came in here this morning, we've got one less block of time, one less hour in our lives that has slipped away. It is also clear that none of us in this room know how many of those hours are left. And so we, we pray with you as, as Scripture would urge us to, to come to grips with our mortality and to plead with you to help us be wise in the days that we have left. Help us to follow godly wisdom, to strive to serve you and love others in all that we do. Lord, if there's anybody listening here this morning who is not fully trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, I pray that they would not go away thinking that somehow this is just a message on doing good works, planning more carefully, spending more wisely, but Lord, that they would see that we need help in this area and that can only come from our Savior Jesus Christ. And so this morning, would you bring them to the place of seeing that Jesus Christ, the servant, came and gave his life for sinners, and rose again from the dead, that, that we might have life, that we might, as those who trust in him, possess the greatest treasure of all, which is life in Christ. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to this body of believers. Help us as a local church to be good stewards with all that you provide. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.